Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning. So who's ready to pull a hammy on Monday night? Anybody in here? Any, any guys? I hope that you come out with that. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 17 this morning, while you're turning there, a couple things. Uh, as you know, uh, we are, we'll be shutting down our coffee shop as of October 31st, just so uh, if you have those, <laughs> those uh, overflowing gift uh, cup gift cards, you better use them. So uh, make sure you get in there and get some stuff. There's also tons of stuff out there. Uh, you know, for sale and such. So check that out if you can. School of Ministry is on, uh, it's on the uh, app. You can click on it. It will take you to a questionnaire from there. I will be in contact with you and we can kind of figure out what, what track you're interested in and such and uh, talk about the details of it. It will be on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. here at the church. Uh, it will run 12-week courses and um, beginning the week of January 8th, so you can make note of that. So make sure you, if you're interested in that, or just want gen- more general information, whatever, you have some questions, make sure you fill that questionnaire out and I will get back to you. I want to talk briefly with you for a moment about the, the school we're starting in uh, fall of next year. Um, there, there's a uh, as we continue to move forward, you know, we're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, and I know a lot of people have questions, so what we're going to do is we're going to host an informational meeting here, November 4th at 1 p.m. Make sure you make note of that. November 4th uh, at 1 p.m. here in the sanctuary, we'll be talking about kind of the vision of the school. We'll be talking about the philosophy of the education for the school and such, so we're, uh, if you're interested in wanting to know more about it, or you just want to know more about it, uh, you know, for yourself and so that you can be praying specifically, come, show up to that meeting. Uh, Randy Lamaster, who will be overseeing uh, this ministry of our church, will uh, be pre- presenting this information and helping you understand uh, where we're going as far as the education and such. So with that said, I was going to ask if we as a church, if we would pray for four specific things relating to the school and just all the stuff that we have going on. Um, the first thing I'm going to ask you to pray for is fin- financial provisions. Uh, we had a meeting with the city on Wednesday of this week to try and to, to get some, gain some understanding relating to what we're doing as a school in a church and uh, find out what the requirements are for that. Turns out that uh, we, we have to put a fire suppression system in our building, so, uh, which is not a big deal. It just costs money, you know, but... Uh, but, it's, but it would, will help us moving forward as well. Uh, turns out that with the square footage of our building, we're supposed to have one anyway, so uh, didn't know that. Uh, maybe the rules have changed, I'm not sure, but when we built this portion out of the facility, uh, that wasn't a requirement. We met the fire code at the time, but uh, what happens when you start a school is the entirety of the building uh, goes under a different ruling for the fire code. So we have to put in a fire suppression system. Uh, and then we, 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 we want to revamp some of the footprint of, our, of the facility to make it flow better and make it work better for us. Uh, we're looking, you know, we're, we're estimating a budget of about $300,000 to do these things. So would you be praying for that, you know? Uh, it's a daunting number to me, but God calls us to big things. And so it's not something we're worried about. We know God has called us to do this and he will provide for it, no questions asked. Um, so we trust the Lord, but we would invite you to pray with us that you know the Lord would meet our needs relating to that. Number one, financial provision. Number two, favor. Uh, 
uh, it's interesting. Have you ever been in a situation where you go into a meeting with um, city officials and such? There's a, uh, there, it, it feels tense. You know, it just feels odd. It feels like there's, there, you know, there's a prevention in the room or something. But listen, these people are doing their job. They have a job to do, and I totally grasp that. And it's, it's not emotional uh, on their aspect, you know, more emotional on my side because I'm trying to move forward. And, but with that said, we want to pray for favor from the Lord relating to the meeting with city officials, relating to the permitting of uh, what we're going to do, and also with uh, architects and with contractors and such that we would pray for favor. Thirdly, for wisdom, as we continue to put uh, details together relating to the school, that God will give us uh, uh, wisdom relating to that and then all the other ministries that we have going on in our church. And finally, that you would pray with us for unity in our body and our leadership as we pursue the will of God. There are no problems. There haven't been any problems. We're unaware if there are uh, relating to the direction we're going. But what I know uh, is that the enemy loves to try and thwart what God is doing. He wants to thwart the growth of, he, of, of what God is doing. And so um, I, we're a family. And so I, I would invite you, if you have any questions whatsoever, don't be afraid to ask any of the elders. Uh, contact myself. Contact the church. We'd love to sit down and talk with you about what we have going on, what the Lord is directing us to do in detail, uh, you know, and whatever. If you have concerns, hey, let's talk about these things because uh, this isn't my church. It's not your church. It's his church. So we want to be on the same page, and we want to, the unity of our body to maintain, to be continued to maintain as it is. And um, so... Uh, those four things. We'll also, today, we'll also be praying for the peace of Israel. And uh, so if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts 17. Once you're there, stand with me. We'll read the scripture this morning, and then we will pray. Acts 17, with a message entitled, Turning the World Upside Down. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts 17, we read, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Ap Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and, some, and taking some uh, wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the, the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. We desire to hear from you this morning. We desire to be changed and transformed. We don't want to leave the same people, Lord. So we invite you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to speak to us, Lord. Change and transform us, Lord. And um, we thank you for doing that through the teaching of your word this morning. We also want to pray, Lord, for the peace of Israel. 
uh, in, in accordance to your word, Lord. We want to pray that you would, that there would be a peace that comes upon the nation, Lord, um, that you would give them peace from their enemies, Father. We want to pray, Father, for all of those who are dealing with loss as a result of this war that's going on over there, Father, that you would, uh, you would bring comfort to their hearts and you would reveal their need for you through this time. You would just be with each and every person who's experiencing that now, Lord, that you would use this moment to draw hearts to yourself on both sides of this situation. And that, uh, Lord, you would, uh, you would not only just that, those involved in the situation, but even those on the outside looking in. God, use it to draw people to yourself. So we just pray over the land of Israel, over the situation happening there. And we ask you to just have your way in this, in this moment and draw people to yourself. Father, we pray specifically for the ministry here at Calvary Chapel. We thank you for all that you're doing here. And we're excited about the direction we're going uh, as of next year, Lord, the things that you have set before us. They're big things, Lord, but they are small in accordance to who you are. Uh, you can accomplish all things. And so we look to you, Father. We pray first and foremost financial provisions for uh, the, the, thing, the finances we need to, uh, to come up to code in our building and just all the things that we desire to do to, make this, to maximize the footprint of this building so that we can uh, equip kids for the work of ministry and also adults. And uh, so we lift that up to you. We pray for favor, Lord over all the meetings that we'll have with those who are involved in this situation. And we pray for opportunity at the same time, Lord, that we can, we can display the love of Christ and that we can share the love of Christ with those whom we meet. So give us favor, Father. We pray for wisdom, for the leadership of the church, Lord, as we continue to make decisions uh, relating to all that's going on in Calvary Chapel here with the school and the other ministries that are happening in this building, Lord. We ask you to give us wisdom relating to these things. And finally... Father, we also want to pray for unity in our body. God, that we would be a people that desire to have conversations about things and, and if there are questions and, if there, uh, and just to be on the same page, Father. Um, your word tells us in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless we're agreed? And so we, we desire to be on the same page. Lord, keep us on the same page. We ask you to just, uh, we just ask you to, you know, Bind the enemy from distracting us from the things that you're calling us to, Lord. So we lift this time to you now. We ask you to bless our time in your Bible, in the word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So in March uh, 1931, Nicholas Murray Butler, who was the president of Columbia University in New York, delivered a speech at the University of California where he famously said these words, I divide the world into three classes. There are the few who make things happen, the many who watch things happen, and the overwhelming majority who have no notion of what's happening. It's true. I wonder this morning, as you consider those words, what class you might fit in. Are you a person who makes things happen? Are you on mission? Are you looking for opportunities? Are you uh, pursuing the things that God has put before you? 
Are you the type of person who is watching other people make things happen and just sitting on the sidelines? Or are you a person who's completely oblivious and you don't know what's happening at all? We fit into one of these categories, no doubt. Um, If you're a person who wants to make things happen or has that mentality of making things happen, then you understand your purpose and you're living it out. That's what it takes to be a person that makes things happen. You have something driving you. You have an understanding of what you're called to and you're willing to take the steps to live these things out. It was confirmed uh, relating to the business world by a man named John Byrne who wrote a book called World Changers. He interviewed 25 of the most influential entrepreneurs who changed business as we know it, people such as John Mackey, the co-founder of Whole Foods, Fred Smith, founder of FedEx, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank, founders of the Home Depot, and Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix. In, In his interview with these people, the most common trait that he found amongst these entrepreneurs was that they understood their purpose and they made that the central focus of their businesses. That's what it takes to be a person who makes things happen. You must understand your purpose and then being willing to live it out. It's not enough to just understand it, but you have to be willing to walk it out at the same time. The Apostle Paul was such a person as this. He understood his purpose and he was willing to walk his purpose out. Uh, It tells us here his purpose. We came across it in Acts chapter 9. Uh, when we were going through that portion of the scripture. It tells us, Acts 9, 16, that Paul was to be a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This was his purpose and he understood it and it, was, it drove him to do the things that he did and it was the central focus of his life. He lived his life with this understanding of what God had called him to do, that I'm to be a chosen vessel for the Lord, to bring the gospel to those who don't know the Lord. It wasn't just Paul who was living out his purpose, though. We know that he has traveling companions with him. Uh, we learned last week that it was, it was Silas and Timothy and Luke who are traveling with the, the apostle Paul. Uh, and, and they, too, are understanding their purpose and living their purpose out. This tells me something about the people that you surround yourself with. That when you surround yourself with people that are living in a manner in which they understand their purpose and they're living it out, that that rubs off on you. Uh, The word tells us that it's bad morals that are bad company that corrupts good morals, right? Uh, We understand that those people whom we associate with, we we seem to take on their characteristics. Think about this for a second. The people that you hang out with. You ever notice how uh, when you start to hang out with someone new that sometimes you start to take on some of their mannerisms? Maybe their their laugh, you all of a sudden begin to laugh a little bit like that. You begin to maybe say some of the things that they say and maybe even do some of the things that they do. It's true. The people that you associate yourself with will directly impact the way that you live your life. You know, in other words, if you associate yourself with people who watch people make things happen, guess what you'll become? A watcher. 
If you're a person who uh, associates yourself with people who have no idea what's happening, guess what? You're going to be a person who has no idea what's happening. But if you associate yourself with people who make things happen, you're setting yourself up to become a person who makes things happen. You learn, we learn from each other in this, in this realm, in this way. Paul was a man who was living out his mission and it was rubbing off on Silas and Timothy and Luke and Barnabas and everybody else that Paul came in contact with. We have the capacity to influence and be influenced by the people that we hang out with. So important that we understand this. Paul understood what his purpose was and he was living it out. He was convinced that his purpose was <clears throat> to, to get as many people saved as he possibly could. could. He, he wanted to bring the gospel to as many people as he could. And so he never sat back on his laurels. He was moving all the time, pressing forward. And we see that in the book of Acts. Once he finished one thing, he was on to the next. What does God have for me next? God wants us, he told us to, uh, you know, be people who subdue the land. He's called us to be workers in these, in these moments. He's called us laborers in a field that is filled with a harvest. He wants us to do things. It's so interesting when you think about just work in general. Some of us have the mentality, like I did growing up, that work is bad. Like, oh man, work is bad. Do you know work, work wasn't part of the curse? That they were working before the curse in the garden? Do you know that they were called to tend the garden? They had a job when they went into the garden. The problem when the curse came is work got harder. But we've always, God has always intended us to be workers. He's always intended us to be, uh, you know, productive in the things that we're due. We're, we're, we're in heaven, I hope you don't have this misunderstanding that you're going to be laying on clouds and little fat babies are going to be feeding you grapes and stuff. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it's going to be. You have a job to do, even in heaven. I'm convinced that, as the word tells us, that we're going to be ruling over places, that God will have things for us to do. Of course, we'll do it perfectly, and we'll do it in context of him being the center of everything, but we will be productive, and we will be people that will be doing all kinds of things, I believe. God wants us to be productive people. Paul understood that, and he understood his call on his life. You know, he came to the place which I don't think many people come to, relating to their life. And listen to what he says. This is what really his, kind of his understanding of his life. He says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus <clears throat> to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What this doesn't mean is Paul has a disregard for life in general. That's not what he said. What he said is, my love for myself and my love for my life is not going to hinder what God has me to do. And in other words, I'm a sacrifice to the Lord. I'm here to do what God's called me to do. I don't count my own safety. I don't consider my life worthy of saving, in other words, to go outside of what God is calling me to do. I will go wherever he calls me to go. I will do whatever he calls me to do, even if that means to give up my life. This is somebody who understands their call. And do you know when you have a mentality like this, 
that there's not much the enemy can throw at you to discourage you or to, to get you off track. When you have a, an understanding that you have a one-track purpose, and that is for the Lord, whatever he has for you. And yeah, all of our lives uh, you know, look differently in the way that we live out our purpose, but we all have the same purpose. And that is to go into the world and share the gospel to go into the world and, and make disciples, to help people come to that place of understanding. You know, C.T. Studd, I love this quote. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, folks. That is the reality. Live for eternity. That was what the Apostle Paul was doing. And that's why he was used to the degree that he was used is because he understood this and he was living it out to such a great degree. And thus, he was the type of person that would be used by God to turn the world upside down. There's three things I want to show you from this text relating to becoming that kind of person who will, God will use to 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 turn your respective world upside down. First, you must go where God calls you to go. Look at verse one. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So where we left off in Acts chapter 16, at the end of the verses, you know what happened. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. There was a purpose in that imprisonment. God was trying to reach a jailer. And so he did it, you know, uh, just through the imprisonment of his servants. He, he allowed all of that to happen so that he could reach the jailer. The jailer was reached for Christ. His whole household was reached for Christ. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, they were released the next day. And, of course, Paul and Silas went. And um, they, they encouraged the saints and then they left. But notice that there was a change in the, the pronouns used there in verse 40. It was we, Luke, writing, was, was with them. But notice in verse 40, it says, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That means that Luke probably stayed in Philippi. He didn't go on with them to Thessalonica. He stayed in Philippi. What was he doing in Philippi? We don't know. It does, we, don't, we don't have any information relating to that. Probably uh, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, I would think. I, I would think that he was there to help those who had come to Christ grow and, and get centered on the Lord and live their lives out for that. So we, that's an assumption. What we know, as you can see in this map, is that Paul and Silas and Timothy went on to this place called Thessalonica. It was about 100 miles uh, to, the, to the southeast of Philippi, situated on the Aegean Sea and on this roadway, the most important roadway that ran across Macedonia from east to west called the Ignata Way. Uh, from Philippi, these men would have to pass through Amphipolis, which was about 30 miles south of uh, Philippi. Then they would, from Amphipolis to Apollonia, it was another 30 miles, and then from, Amphip uh, from Apollonia to Thessalonica, it was another 40 miles. So if I'm doing my math correctly, that's 100 miles, about there, something like that. Anybody with me on that? Is that 100 miles? I think it is. But uh, at any rate, what, what happens here is that, remember Paul and Silas, they'd just been beaten, right, they, with rods, could you imagine traveling 100 miles after being beaten by rods? That would have been brutal. 
Many uh, scholars believe that they were probably, uh, you know, on horseback and such riding that. We don't know. It doesn't tell us that. Uh, what you need to know is uh, during this time, people would travel anywhere from 20 to 40 miles a day. Dude, talk about getting your steps in, man. You know, you go five, five miles, that's about, I don't know, something like 13,000 steps or something. Anybody track their steps? Try, you can lose weight tracking your steps, man. You just walk. Uh, and anyway, so these guys would, would move 20 to 40 miles a day. That tells us that it's probable it took them three days to get there. It's interesting to note that even though they stopped in these places, they didn't stay. They didn't stay in these places. It's important to note that they had a place they were going. And, um, you know, of course, the people in Apollonia and the, the, the people in Am, Am, whatever it was, Am, Amphil, Amphipol, I don't know. Dude, come on, man. Sometimes the train just leaves the, the tracks. Choo-choo, it's just gone. But anyway, regardless, you know what I'm talking about. They did not allow themselves to be hindered in those places. And I wonder if sometimes in our lives, as God has called us to go somewhere, and we stop along the way, and we stay where he's not called us to stay. And we think, oh, this is so wonderful here. This is, I, I really like it here. It, um, but is that where God has called you to go? Are you where he's called you to go? Or, or are you staying because you prefer it? You like it better. There's, a, there's an important principle relating to that. And it's called, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Yes, there are people to reach in these cities, of course. But Paul understands when he goes where God calls him to go, that these people will be reached in a different way. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. When the church in Thessalonica is birthed, what happens is Amphipolis and Apollonia are, are met with the gospel. And not just them, but the entire province. And going even further than that, it tells us, Paul writing to this church in 1 Thessal Thessalonians 1.8, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. No, man, I want to be that kind of, of, of a Christian that no one needs to say anything about what I'm doing because you can just see the effects of it. You know, this is the kind of church that Thessalonica became. They affected their entire province and beyond. That Paul didn't even have to mention, oh, let me tell you about this church in Thessalonica because people had already heard about it because they were doing their job. They were on task. Don't get sidetracked in the other cities is what I'm saying. Don't get sidetracked in the other places that you have to pass through to go where God's calling you to go. He, he wants you to go there. And even though there might be some great things along the way, uh, you're, you'll miss out on the bigger opportunity. And that is where he wants you to be. Be willing to go where he calls you to go. Paul, Silas, and Timothy make the 100-mile journey there to Macedonia. Macedonia during this time was one of the most wealthy and influential cities in the area. It was about, or Th Thessalonica, it was about a 200,000 population during the time that Paul would visit there. Um, not only was it the second largest city in biblical days, but it actually is still the second largest city in Greece. It still exists. Uh, and you can see the ruins there of Thessalonica. 
It was uh, established and founded in uh, 315 BC by Cassander on the site of an ancient city called Therm, named after his wife, Princess Thessalonike. Anybody looking for a name for their daughter? There you go. Sound just rolls right off the tongue. Hey, Thessalonica, you're such a pretty girl, you know. Uh, she was the stepsister of Alexander the Great. Uh, when the Romans took over Macedonia in 167 BC, they made, uh, they made Thessalonica one of four uh, capital cities in the, the division. And then Ma- uh, Thessalonica would become the capital of Macedonia when they would reorganize the structure of that province in 148 BC. Um, the city was rewarded for siding with Antony and Octavian in the Battle of Philippi. We talked about that last week. Uh, Thessalonica was given the status of a free city. That means that they were self-governed. Even though Rome governed the entirety of the known world at the time, uh, Thessalonica had its own government structure. They made literally their own rules underneath the Roman uh, understanding of what the governance of Rome, but they had their own government within the city. They would govern themselves. Um, and uh, because it was located on the Aegean Way uh, and all, the Aegean Sea and this important uh, trade route there going across east to west on, uh, Mas- through Macedonia, Thessalonica became an important trade center for all of the Roman Empire. It was such a crucial uh, city for that. Not only this, but it was also a city of cultic practice. Uh, there was the worship of Dionysus, who was the god of winemaking and re- religious ecstasy. She's also, also known as Bacchus to the Romans. So there was worship of Dionysius there in Thessalonica, as well as the worship of Serapis, who was considered the god of all, possessing such powers as healing and fertility. If that wasn't enough of cultic worship, but they also had the worship of Caesar there in Thessalonica. This, Peggy, this, this city was pagan to the core, just like Philippi, but they did have a sanctuary. There was enough Jewish men in this city to have a sanctuary. The word tells us that it was customary for Paul to go to the synagogue. That's what he did when he went into new places, and that's what he does when he comes to Thessalonica. I think that's because it was where the low-hanging fruit was, and I'll explain what I mean by that, not that it was the, the, it would, would have been the most easiest route to get the gospel into the city through the synagogue because he's not starting from square zero. Like these people already have an understanding that there was a God that created all things. It's the same God that Paul's talking about. He's not having to overcome any of those issues. We're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're also talking about the Messiah that God said he would would send. And so they already had that base laid. There was no problem with them having that understanding. They understood this was what was necessary. Where they messed up is they didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul would go into these synagogues and he would introduce them to Jesus and explain why he, he was the, the Messiah. Um, you know, he, w- he would go there. When Paul would enter a synagogue, I'm thinking that uh, there would be some common, out- common things that he would tell them. Like, hey, my name is Saul and uh, I was a, a, the Pharisee of Pharisees in Jerusalem. I was part of the Sanhedrin. I was, Paul had an incredible pedigree is what I'm saying. Like I was brought up underneath the most influential teacher of my day and of the day that he's talking about, Gamaliel. 
I mean, the foundation, the, the, the pedigree that Paul could lay out to open up an opportunity for the gospel to be, uh, to be preached was like none other, particularly in a Jewish synagogue. And so he would establish that base and it would be easy for, of course, yeah, you can teach. That's what they would do. They would allow people to get in and share the scriptures. Jesus did it and even introduced them to himself <laughs> as he walked into the synagogue. I think it was in Nazareth where he read the, um, the scroll of Isaiah and then he said, this speaks of me. And then they wanted to kill him. So that's what happens to the Apostle Paul as well. Uh, he he lays, out, lays out these things and they want to kill him. Not only was there a, a really, uh, you know, a, a good Jewish base that he would be able to teach into, but there were also Gentiles there in the synagogue who were uh, people who were proselytes, who had, who had converted to Judaism, who were God-fearers, who feared the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and such. And so there, were, there would be those people there, so, which would make it much easier for the gospel to go into the Gentiles then too. This is all very practical stuff that, that God uses to bring the gospel into. It's not like he just, in other words, he didn't just go to the town square and say, let me tell you about Jesus, guys. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen people do that. I mean, some people get saved through that, but, it, but, but often it's not effective, you know. Uh, the Lord, if it's the Holy Spirit and he causes people to do it, then, then it will be effective, but, uh, but oftentimes that's not the normal route of the way we share the gospel, it's through normal means, relationships that we have and such. Paul did these things. Now, as easy as it might have seemed to take the gospel into the Jews through the synagogues, uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous for Paul to do this. It was incredibly, uh, you know, there was a huge risk when he went into a synagogue that he knew there would come a point when this, he was going to turn this thing around and he was either going to get killed or people were going to come to Christ. Because what he would say about Jesus would be called blaspheme. They would blasphemy from the Jews. They would not have it. Tear in clothes, dust in the air, and let's kill him. Foam coming out their mouth onto their beards and all this stuff. They would go nuts. They did it to Jesus too. They did it to Jesus. Their understanding of the Messiah was blocking them from the real Messiah. How tragic it is. And so Paul would, would this is what happened to him in his first missionary journey. When he, uh, you, know, you know, he came to Antioch and Iconium tells us in Acts 14, verse 19, that when they went down to Lystra, that the Jews that he talked to in Antioch were so frustrated with his message that they followed him down to these other cities and got all the whole city in an uproar. And particularly in Lystra, they were just worshiping. They thought he was a god. They thought he was Apollo, and they thought Barnabas was Zeus. And so they're like, whoa, these guys are gods. And then the Jews from Antioch come down to Lystra, and here's what it says. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. He got stoned, like, not like you did in college, just in case you missed that the first time we went through this. But uh, he's talking about rocks, not dope. But anyway, uh, so, you know, the Jews did not take kindly to the message, is my point. Even though that would seem like it would be the most easiest way to get the gospel into a city, it was super dangerous. There was big risks with doing this. And what you need to know is that didn't hinder him from doing it. 
Paul went where God called him to go. He didn't stop at the cities where, where it may have seemed nicer. Or he could have maybe done some work there. God called him to Thessalonica, and that's where he went. And he did what the Lord told him to do in these moments. He went to the synagogue. That's the second thing that you need to do if you want to be a person who turns the world upside down, is you need to do what God calls you to do. Look at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now Luke tells us for three weeks that the apostle Paul is in this synagogue, and he's, he's, he's doing three things while he's there. He's reasoning from the scriptures, He's explaining the scriptures, and he's proving the scriptures. He has a methodology that he's adopted as he goes into this. The scriptures were important to the Jews. The scriptures were important. They looked to the scriptures. Jesus said, uh, you, you, you look to the scriptures. He said this to the scribes and Pharisees. You look to the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but I tell you, they speak of me. And so they had a high regard for scripture. So Paul wants to reason with them from Scripture. That word reason, it literally, in the Greek, it, it, it would be translated dialogue. It means to speak back and forth or alternate, to converse with, to reason, present intelligent discourse. In other words, Paul was having a conversation, a dialogue with the Jews for three weeks relating to the Scriptures. He's having a conversation with them. In other words, he's not telling them what they should believe. He's conversing with them. He's dialoguing with them. Don't you find that to be more effective when you're trying to share the gospel with people than just saying, well, no, you just need to believe this. I don't care what you think. You just need to believe this. Stop thinking. Is that what God says to us? Hey, check your brain at the door. No, he wants us to be thinkers. But what will happen in a, in a conversation like this, if we're open, is the Lord will lead us to the place that the person talking to us is trying to lead us. Because that's the truth. That's the reality. He's, he'll lead us to Christ. But Paul understood that I need to reason with my, with my Jewish brothers. You know, Paul would have given up his life for them to come to Christ. He said it before, I wish my life a curse for my, for my countrymen. He loved them so much. He desired for all the people of Israel to come to Christ. But he understood the mentality. And so he said, let's start with reasoning. Do you know that's where God starts with the nation of Israel too? He said it. In Isaiah chapter one, you know the verses, I'm sure, where he talks about, you know, you guys trampling my courts with your sacrifices that don't mean anything to you. You're just going through the motions and you're offering these blood. Your hands are full of blood, the Lord says. But listen to what he says in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be come like wool. God reasoned with the nation of Israel far before Paul did. And he was reasoning with them about the same person, Jesus Reasoning about the same thing, that it would, the requirement would be the blood of Christ to wash away the sins of the world. Jesus would be the Lamb of God. 
take away the sins of the world. Secondly, it tells us here that not only did Paul reason from the scriptures, but he explained the scriptures relating to the things the Messiah must do, namely, suffer death and then be raised from the dead. The word explain means to open up something that has been previously hidden or obscure. Contrary to popular belief, folks, God is not trying to conceal the truth to you. He's not trying to conceal his will to you. He's not trying to conceal any of this from you. He's trying to reveal it to you. But you have a part to play in that revealing. You know, that's why the word tells us that if, if you seek me, uh, you'll find me if you, what? Seek me with all your heart. If you really want to know, I'll show you. But if you don't really want to know, you're going to be, still be left in the dark. Not because God's leaving in the dark, because you really don't want to know. That's the reality. You know, when it comes to God's will, and I think of so many people that are, get frustrated with trying to understand God's will, and I know this myself, I've been there, where, you know, I sense God saying something in my life and saying, hey, this is what I want you to do, and then I, I try and figure it out from there, Right? Never a good idea when you're trying to figure it out. You know, the Lord will reveal these things. You just remain open to him. But, but you become so frustrated, and then you say, that's it. And you're closed off to what he, wants you, what he wants to do in your life. Why? Because he's not a revealer? No, because you, you've given up. You don't want to know. Seek him with all your heart. Seek him with everything you got, and you will see things clearly. Jesus revealed the scriptures. He, he opened them up to those two men on the road to Emmaus. You know the story. It was in Luke chapter 24. You can read the whole account later, but listen to what it says here, beginning in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, listen to this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them uh, gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. The word open in verse 32 of Luke 24 is the same Greek word used as the word explain in Acts uh, 17 here uh, in our verses. God reveals his word to us so that it can be opened and so that we can then reveal it to others, so that we can open it to other people. The third thing that Paul does here is he proves uh, that Jesus is a Messiah through the scriptures. Do you know that's how you prove things? It's not what you think or what I think, it's what God said. What did he say about these things? Paul uh, brings in the appropriate Old Testament um, scriptures relating uh, to the Christ, relating to his suffering and to his resurrection. I have no doubt that he started with the Proto-Evangelium. Do you know what that is? That is the very first time in the, in the Old Testament the gospel is preached. Who knows where that is? The Proto-Evangelium, where, where is it? 
Genesis 3.15, that is exactly right. When God said to Satan, he preached the gospel to Satan, he said, uh, through the seed of a woman, I'm going to send one that's going to crush you. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That is the very first time we find the gospel presented in the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is saying, I'm sending a savior, and he's going to crush you, but you will bruise him. He probably moved on from there. He's talking about Psalm 22, where it's written about Jesus being crucified. By the way, hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed, folks, he's talking prophetically, uh, using the prophetic word of God to reveal, to prove that Jesus is Messiah. He probably moved on to Isaiah 53, no doubt, talking about how Jesus would be the suffering servant for you and I. He talked about these things. Jesus would become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and then he would probably move on to Psalm 16, where David would write that the Holy One would not see corruption. What does that mean? He would raise again from the dead. That Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, would have to die to rise again from the dead. You can't see corruption if you're alive. You have to die, and he's talking about you know, his body just being corrupted by death, and yet we know that he rose again from the dead. That's what David was saying. Paul, using the scriptures to prove that Jesus would come to suffer, that he would die, he would raise again from the dead. Do you know, in the Jewish mind, they were like, this is hogwash. This is hogwash. I don't believe this. Why? Because the scriptures that they focused on were referring to the second coming of Christ, not the first. They had their eschatology messed up. They didn't understand that Jesus would come twice. First, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Second, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah with a sword. Right? That's the reality. And much of what they understood, I think, to be honest, their real issue, their understanding of eschatology was, I think it was primarily pointing to the millennial kingdom. I think that was really what they thought about it. Well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to just set up his kingdom here on earth. He's going to restore Israel to its proper place, and we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. Well, that will happen, but it'll happen in the millennial kingdom. I think that was their mindset. They totally discounted the scriptures that talked about the Messiah coming to die and raise again from the dead, but it's there. And you can prove these things through scripture, and I promise you, the things that you're dealing with, you know, They're all found in the Bible, and we can prove these things through the Bible. Now, whether somebody wants to receive that or not is completely up to them. Oh, well, we know the Bible is, you know, uh, written by man and all of these kinds of things. And I'm like, oh, well, what books are you reading? I mean, where are you getting your information? Aren't you getting your information from books that are written by men? Hey, even though our, our Bible has been penned by a man, it's inspired by God, and the words are his. Amen? So we have the words, Lord, in order to substantiate the belief system that we have. That's why Christianity is not a mindless uh, religion, folks. It's a relational uh, thing that we are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. God doesn't want us to just have some basic understanding of who he is. He wants us to grow, man. He wants us to grow on a regular basis and have a comprehension of who he is. And when we do that, it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we live. The apostle Paul had a grasp of the gospel, and that's why he, he understood his purpose, and he stayed on mission for his purpose because he understood these things. 
uh, get a good grasp of the gospel and it will change the way that you live your daily life. Well, this brings us to our final point. Not only must we go where God calls us to go and do what God calls us to do, but listen to this. We also need to leave the results to God. Leave the results to God. Look at verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great many uh, of the great of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So in other words, some of them, who is that? Some of the Jews were, they were persuaded, meaning they were convinced relating to Jesus. They believed what Paul had to say. He used the word of God. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. When he brought it forth, some believed. Some didn't because they reject the truth. And that will happen to you as you talk to people. Not only did some of the Jews, uh, were they persuaded, but also it says many of uh, the, the Greeks, devout Greeks were persuaded with the gospel. And not only that, many of the leading women of that culture, many of the uh, leading women of, of Thessalonica came to Christ, the Gentile ladies there, prominent people. The Lord was reaching people there. And there are three different groups here, but they all, respond, they all responded positively to the gospel. It saddens me to think that only some of the Jews responded and that, that would be the sort of the way that it always will be the rest of the book of Acts is just some of them will. Like there's an openness there to some degree. But we know that even to this day that the, there's a blinding of the Jews. Not those who want to believe because people are, Jew, Jewish people are coming to Christ today still. It's not like God said, okay, you can't believe. That's not what he said. He, he Really, when you think about the time that Christ came to the time that the church will be raptured from the church, this is called the church age, the age of grace. This period of time, God has said, I'm pursuing Gentiles because the Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah. That's why. But when we enter into the seven-year tribulation period, what you will find if you read uh, you know, and you keep in mind that it's very Jewish in nature relating to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19, you see that he's speaking about Jewish things. The church is not mentioned, and he's talking about the 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking about them being the, 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 the witnesses for him in the day and age. It's really God turning his heart back to Jews for one last time during that seven-year tribulation period where he will focus on the nation of Israel because his promises are true forever. You know, that's why replacement theology doesn't work, that the church has replaced the Jews. We have not replaced the Jews. We're just living in a day and age where God is focused on Gentiles, in this particular case, not that Jews can't come to Christ, but his focus is on the rest of the world because you know why? Because the Jews weren't doing their job like they were supposed to. They were supposed to be a light to the, to the world, folks, and now we're called to be that light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Go in and, and share your light with people. So uh, all that to say that a lot of Gentiles came to Christ and only some some Jews, and that is the way it seems to be even to this day. Look at, look at how others responded, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So the issue with the Jews here, it tells us very clearly, it wasn't the message. 
It was where the message shined the spotlight. Wasn't the fact that Jesus is Messiah. It was that if Jesus is Messiah, then we're not getting the glory anymore. And, and when, when it says the Jews were jealous, it really isn't a reference to the religious leaders. That's what it's talking about there. But the religious leaders could stir up the rest of the congregation. That's what they did, uh, you know, when Jesus was being crucified. When Pilate was there, what should we do with him? And, and the, the religious leaders stirred the crowd up and they began to yell, crucify him. Why? Because that's what the religious leaders were telling them to say. And so it was the religious leaders really prominently driving this jealousy. They were jealous because Jesus takes away the spotlight from them. The Jews loved the accolades of man, the, the religious leaders in particular. They prodded themselves through life, through their cities with their long robes and their tassels and their phylacteries and all of these things, just dressing as religiously as you can, you know, uh, and, and just before the people. And you know what the, the normal everyday Jew would look at a, a Pharisee that would come down the road and they go, man, I can never be like that. I can never be like that. They're so... Uh, so much of a different level than I am that I could ever be. Was that a false perception or what? Do you know, I look at any prominent person that way and I could go, I could be that way too if I yield myself to Jesus and I give him to my, to the whole, myself to the Holy Spirit. He can do anything through me if I let him do it. God can use you normal people in extraordinary ways, but these guys just, they wanted the limelight. Jesus even said to them um, in he, he said to them that they, those in the, the scribes and Pharisees love the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. They love this stuff. So they desire to, to, to see these things. And Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, the problem was not necessarily the message. It was the prominence that happened. It was taking away the spotlight from them and putting it on Jesus where it was supposed to be at the first place. It tells us that these uh, religious leaders then, they drummed up, listen to what it says, wicked men of the rabble. Wicked men of the rabble. You know what that says? They went to the marketplace and these were lewd people. These were people that were just wicked men. And they went to them and said, hey, come on our team. Does that make sense that you're going to rally with wicked men to accomplish your purpose? Can you see the sinfulness in that? And they're just like, hey, let's, let's get these guys together and we'll create an uproar and then we will stomp, them, stomp out the Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. I like the way that the King James read. He says that it, it says that they found lewd fellows of a baser sort. Lewd fellows of a baser sort. Kind of interesting. Uh, and it goes on to tell us here that they dragged Jason and some of the brothers out before the city authorities, and again, this is a free city. They can, they're self-governing, so they can, they can rule however they desire. And the accusations begin to flow here, and it says that uh, the first one is that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What they're saying is these guys are troublemakers. That's what they said in Acts 15, too. These guys are troublemakers. When they came to Philippi, they were troublemakers, they're troublemakers because Jesus changes cultures, folks. And so that wasn't the most serious thing they were, they were accused of, though. It says in verse 7, Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is a problem. In this culture, that's a problem. If you're uh, if saying there's a different king other than Caesar, then that's treason, 
and that's uh, grounds for capital punishment. You should die because of that. And that's exactly what they're desiring to happen. That's why they're calling them out like this. They weren't teaching that there was a, a greater king than, than Caesar. They were just saying Jesus is king, period. They weren't, in other words, they weren't rebelling against the culture. They were just bringing the gospel forward. And, you know, sometimes that creates havoc, doesn't it? But at the end of the day, uh, they weren't rebelling. Jesus told his, his disciples, you know, when he was asked about this, how do we deal with Rome? You know what he said? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Rome what is, or give to God what is God's. He's not creating a people of rebellion. We're, we're to be a people that live according to the, the rules of the, the laws of the land. And guess what? The laws of the land protect us, so we're in, a, we're in a great position. But we have to live according to that. We need to deal with these kinds of things. And when the, our, our leaders go against the laws of the land, then guess what? We have a right as people under a constitution to say no. That's not right. And we, we have a legal means to deal with that, right? And that's how we should deal with that. We're not to be this angry mob of people that are just considered rebellious. Even though the world will, will twist that, the conversation, say that that's how we are, we ought not be that way. And I do think there are Christians that live that way in a rebellious spirit. I'm not a rebellious spirit. I just want to stand for what God has given us to stand for. Um, it goes on here, and the people in the city of the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, uh, they let them go. I, I love the idea that they disturbed people with the gospel, folks. Are you disturbing people in the way that you live your life for Christ? Are you making waves because you're standing for Jesus? That's what this is saying. They were disturbed. They were disturbed by people, by these three men who were bringing the gospel into a city. It disturbed them greatly. These Jews were disturbed. The city authorities were disturbed. And just the common people were disturbed. Do you know when you really live out your life for Christ... That will be one of the reactions that you get. You will be a disturbance to people. The gospel is confrontational, folks. Jesus, you can silence a room by saying the word Jesus. You can, I, I just say that you try it. You just go into a public place and you go, Jesus, and you see what happens. You know, some people are gonna mean mug you. Some people are gonna wanna beat you up. Uh, other people may turn and go, hey, hallelujah, Amen. You're going to get a different reaction, but, but you will get a reaction with the name Jesus. It, and one of those reactions is it disturbs people. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. It's supposed to ruffle the feathers of the person. It's supposed to make them, uh, you know, question, like, what, why do they keep saying this Jesus thing? Why do you think the enemy uh, made uh, the name of Jesus uh, a derogatory term? Jesus Christ, when people are upset, they're like, Jesus Christ, you know, and I'm like, where is he? I don't know, I don't see him. <laughs> it's because there's power in the name of Jesus, that's why. Jesus ruffles people's feathers, but at the same token, Jesus heals people's souls. The name of Jesus, do not cower from speaking the name of Jesus. There's power in that name. We, we proclaim that name. And that's what Jesus was telling the Jews in John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me. 
that you may have life. It's a, re it's a rebellious thing to reject the Lord. It's a rebellious thing to reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that's what will happen if you live your life as a religious person. You will have the appearance of a lover of God, but in actuality, you will be a rejecter of God. You know, you think of the Muslims, you know, in, in, their, in their culture and their mindset and all these kinds of things, you know, that, that they're presented as a peaceful people who love God. But at the, in reality, their actions say, um, you know, something very different. And at the end of the day, here's what, here's what I know is that they believe what they believe wholeheartedly to the point that they give their life for it. Like, I'll sacrifice my life for what I believe. Even though it's not the same God, it's not the same word, right? But the, the tenacity of a, a Muslim to give their life over to the point of sacrificing themselves. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus said we were supposed to be like, not in the same context, by the way. Not that we would kill people in the name of Jesus, but that we would give our lives away like that. If anybody desires to save his life, he has to lose it. He said, the first thing you have to do when you come to me is you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he's calling us to. Religion will block you. You'll become a person that has head knowledge with an empty heart and you will live religiously and not relationally and you will care less about people. That's what I found mostly with religious people is they have no capacity to love other people because it's all rules-based and it's all merit-based and how well you're doing based on how well you're living the checklist out. And that's not what Jesus called us to if we could do this on our own, he wouldn't have came and <laughs> been crucified, right? If we could do it any other way, he even asked the Father, is there any other way? And he said, no. Not my will, but your will be done, God. And he was crucified. Your stance for Christ is going to create disturbances. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, organized Christianity, which fails to make disturbance, is dead. Organized Christianity, which fails to make disturbance, is dead. The name of Jesus is going to create a disturbance, folks. And so we stay the course. We need to be faithful to be people who go where God calls us to go, who do what God calls us to do, and who leave the results to him. Here's what, what I know is that Paul and Silas and Timothy weren't worried about the outcome of this. They just knew that they were supposed to do these things. And you might be frustrated in your faith today and thinking, well, why aren't... I don't see the fruit. I don't see what God's doing. Um, if you know you're, you're where you're supposed to be and you know you're doing what you're supposed to do, you, you don't worry about what that looks like. You just rest in him and you leave the results to him. He knows what he's doing. And we live in a culture in a day where it's becoming increasingly more difficult to share the gospel with people. But that doesn't mean we stop doing it. We stay the course. You know, we, we stand our ground I have in my notes, we, we need to stop playing possum in Christ and take the world by storm with the gospel because that's what the gospel, that's what the world needs. They need Jesus. So we stand, we, we come and we proclaim the words and not worry about the results of that. We don't seek our comfort. We don't seek the reward. We just seek to be faithful. I'll end with this quote by Edward Everett Hale who once said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. 
What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I shall do. You were created in Christ Jesus, born again to a living hope, to turn the world upside down. So make it happen. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.